One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we're digesting what the triumph of Jeremy Corbyn means for the Labour Party. This week saw the dominant triumph of Jeremy Corbyn as he was finally elected leader of the Labour Party. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and Anoush Shikalian, who is deputy web editor, to talk about the first week. Um, George, I'm going to start with you. Let's go right back to the victory speech, the special conference that they had at the QE2 centre, although the People's QE2 centre. <laughs> I saw your gag about that. Um, was that stage managed well? Because a lot of the criticisms about Corbyn have been that he hasn't managed to present himself in a, in a good way was that at least mm. was that well the speech well? went down very well in the hall as you'd expect a lot of the thousands of, who voted for him were there um but i think he failed to reach out to the country in that speech it felt very much like a speech he could have get, could have given at one of his rallies and this was his moment in the spotlight i think even some of his supporters feel that he could have done more to strike a slightly different tone uh, and then the first few days were of course pretty chaotic um, he wasn't prepared for, to handle the media. Um, he was he pulled out of the Andrew Marsh show uh, and then attended a, a fate in his constituency on, on mental health instead, which was fine. But no TV crew was informed, so he missed another chance to immediately to speak to yeah. the country. I think that's <clears> interesting. If you're going to do something in your and actually, because he went straight from the uh, special conference to the refugees' welcome rally again, which is a big statement of, uh, of what you know what he's interested in doing and kind of the people power. But again, you sort of pre-brief a ca- the camera crew, and then I mean that is that's not. I, this is my weirdness of this. That's not a kind of weird new Labour Alistair Campbell master of the dark arts manipulation thing that's just a kind of if you're going to do gestures like if and, and the whole point of you going as leader of the new leader of the Labour Party to a gesture is to draw attention to a cause make sure you draw attention to it mm. um Anusha I want to ask you really um as somebody slightly uh slightly removed not not probably removed enough for your own taste but slightly <laughs> removed from from the kind of mad maelstrom of comment about this do you think it's damaged him permanently? I think that um, the way that he looks shambolic is a big problem because one of the big problems with Ed Miliband's time as Labour leader was not only that um, the public didn't trust his economic policies, but they didn't think he looked like Prime Minister. And Jeremy Corbyn seems to be doing his damnedest not to look like someone who could be the next Prime Minister. Like you say, from the day that he won, he went straight to the refugee rally. But all we really saw of him was some amateur mobile phone footage of him singing the red flag in a Westminster pub. That's really alienating because people don't think that's normal. And people don't think that that um, resonates authority. I think the presentation issue is really interesting because it's something actually weirdly within the 
media bubble, I think it's taken less seriously. I think lots of people who work in, in London in kind of creative professional jobs, actually they might wear like jeans and a shirt to work. You know, there's a whole thing about kind of tech companies specifically have really dressed down. That's actually a symbol of status is being able to get to work in flip-flops. But for a lot of people, you know, certainly my parents, they would sort of think, well, show a bit of respect, actually. That's kind of how I think how a lot of people see the the dress side of the presentation. I totally agree with that. I think it's a real middle-class luxury and indulgence to be so casual and to be so, to do things on the hoof like he's been doing, when actually um, people want to see someone that they trust. And, and I think lots of people who voted for him were looking for something in him that was new and exciting, but also something that they could believe was actually something something that he was taking seriously a job that he wanted that he's going to fulfill yeah i suppose in a way because he's kind of he's on a permanent job interview isn't he really? mm. like he's doing is a job interview for prime minister and if you go to a job interview most people wear a suit like that's not an unexpected thing but george it got a bit better on wednesday didn't it with prime minister's questions it did um clearly what what jeremy corbyn realized in advance was that he wouldn't succeed at pmk's as usual so rather than trying to play the game he tried to change it so he didn't sort of throw punches at David Cameron immediately. He asked questions on behalf of the public. He effectively crowdsourced his first PMQs, had more than 40,000 responses, um, which some poor researcher from the sounds of it, no doubt, had to trawl through. And it worked quite well for him. It meant it was quite difficult for David Cameron to attack him. It's a very disarming tactic. If you're asking questions on behalf of the public, you can't simply dismiss them. But it was also fairly easy for him. So he didn't, Corbyn emerged unscathed, but he'd played for a nil-nil draw, essentially. And David Cameron actually is quite good at the Q&A-style format, the radio phone-in. It gives him a chance to just repeat his party's messages without coming under any real pressure. And he's just won an election, so we can see that he, the public clearly have some affection for him. He outpolls his party. I'm, <clears throat> if this carries on, and, and in fairness, the Corbyn team have signaled that this is not going to be how they'll do PMQs every week, then I think David Cameron would be delighted. Mm, I thought it was really interesting to think, and, and actually I agree with you, it's, it's disarming because you can't scoff at somebody who is a, a you know a frontline care worker in the NHS, you just can't show disrespect to them, it would be a politically toxic for Cameron, but it did mean that, I think one of the questions actually ended, what would you say to Nicole? And the trouble was it turned out what David Cameron would say to Nicole was, stronger economy, fairer for all, you know, we've invested money in the NHS because we've made the tough savings. And you got those, you got those lines. Um, it was actually as well, not in PMQ's terms, not that rowdy. I thought there was a difficult moment early on where one of the Tory backbenchers said something about, you know, would David Cameron join with me in paying tribute to um, the heroes of the Battle of Britain? And David Cameron very much lowballed that. He didn't turn that into a political... There was some slightly waspish phrase about, you know, I obviously have huge respect for the veterans. But I think he probably realised that that would be... You know, if, you, if you're seen to politicise that, it's fine for the papers to do that. But if you as the leader of the, the Tory party and the Prime Minister do that, then you have just turned people's sacrifice and death into a kind of cheap PMQ's jibe. Um George, from inside the Corbyn camp, ah, you know, well, okay. First of all, how 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 much has he managed to build the the sort of lower ranks of the the ministerial positions and his own team now? Mm. So obviously, he has a shadow cabinet in place, and and the reshuffle was was fairly chaotic. Um, he is, uh, I'm told, as 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 we record, uh, set to announce his shadow ministerial team, the full team, his own team. He's fortunate in that he has Simon Fletcher, who is his chief of staff now 
who worked as uh, his campaign director and was previously chief of staff to Ken Livingstone during his time as, as mayor of London. He's well respected across the party by wings. They see him as a as a serious uh, professional. And he's also brought in uh, Neil Coleman, who worked with um, Fletcher at City Hall, both under Ken Livingstone and under Boris Johnson. He's going to be his director of policy. Um, what he's lacking at the moment, and, and which... Um, everyone said there's, there's a clear need for, is, is a spin doctor, is a, is a director of communications. Uh, Carmel Nolan, who um, was uh, the press spokeswoman for the Stop the War Coalition, fulfilled that role during his campaign. And sources tell me that she's in talks about possibly making the transition to his office. Because I think it's, I think one of the things that the election showed is that all of the so-called little things that people on the left might sometimes dismiss as unimportant Ed Miliband and the bacon sandwich and the Edstone, uh, the Edstone and um, the negativity around him beating his brother and so on. Actually, this does all matter, and I think the election showed that because the one thing all the post-election studies show is that Labour's leader was a problem for them, and I think um, all of those negative impressions, all of those negative images of Ed Miliband created a, cumulatively a, a disastrous uh, image for him. And if it was a challenge with Ed Miliband, someone who had been in the cabinet, someone who uh, could put on a suit and, and by the end actually look quite smart and, and telegenic, it's going to be an immense challenge with, with, with Jeremy Corbyn. And so I mean, Ed Miliband's pollster, James Morris, wrote recently for, for the Staggers that um, leaders of the opposition have about 17 days to really define themselves. That's between their sort of victory speech and then, and then their party conference speech. And uh, your Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have any time to waste on that front. That's very true. And Anoush, I think you know the criticism of the media coverage will be: no one cares about this stuff. You know, it's all sort of bubble. You know, it's day to day. It's just kind of tiny micro froth. Is there anything that's happened this week that you think that will? I was going to say, we'll be sitting here in a podcast in five years' time, still talking about it. Yeah, it was a really bad look for Jeremy Corbyn, who went to a Battle of Britain commemoration ceremony thing, and um, he didn't sing the national anthem, whereas everyone who was standing with him did, uh, including Michael Fallon. And that looked really bad, and people will say, oh, this is, you know, the um, right-wing media um, picking holes in Jeremy Corbyn's principles and trying to embarrass him. But actually, if if an ordinary person sees that clip on six o'clock news that's that's off-putting for them most of the country like the monarchy they like the queen i think it's 68 percent they polled the public last week 68 percent of people think the monarchy is a good thing for britain and they're just they're, they're not going to vote for someone to be their prime minister who refuses to sing the national anthem for me it's about um you know there's that kind of great idea of you know concede and move on about about policy things that you know but i i feel the same thing kind of applies almost to, to principles which is that do you, you know do you want to is, does it mean that much to you to, to to make a stand on this kind of thing that you will risk, you know, people who are suffering under the benefit cap not getting a government that reduces the benefit cap? That's the. But then I I know this is going to be wildly unpopular because you know I think you have to have you have to have priorities. You cannot be actually this is something that no one wants to say in politics. You cannot be intensely principled about every single thing because it, you have to work within a system that is kind of corrupt and broken and always you know. And you are but one person working with that system. You have to decide what really matters. You know, if you can only get one thing done or a couple of things done, what do you want them to be? 
Well, no, exactly. You can't realise your principles, however strongly you hold them, if you don't get into power, which I think is something that Jeremy Corbyn and all of his, all of the people who voted for him have sort of slightly forgotten. I mean, on that same day that he was caught up in this national anthem row, when it would have just been much easier for him to have sung it, um, you know, the Tories won this vote on cutting tax credits, which is a huge problem for lots of ordinary families in this country. And it seemed like the debate was in the Labour Party was just in completely the wrong place because of their leaders, like, first blunder in the first two days. I also think there's a way out of that, which is to say, it's not the system I would have chosen, but it's the system that we've got, and I will I will work within it, but I will work to, to change that system. Mm. I mean, that that's always been the problem with particularly, you know, people who want things to change on the left. When you're arguing against a change to the status quo, which already, you know, advantages your enemies, if there was a whole um, discussion in, when Barack Obama was first elected about whether or not they would take campaign financing... And you can say, well, I would take a very principled opposition to it and no, we won't have big donors and then we won't get any power and we won't do it. And, you know, we won't be able to change any number of other things. You have to decide what things are the things that you absolutely won't budge on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's um, our first of probably many of, of such podcasts. I, I can't, I have to tell you, George, I'm so relieved that the Labour leadership election was <laughs> is over. It felt like it was going on for <laughs> years and years. And at least there is now a leader. There will be policies, there will be a conference speech, you know, we'll have substantive kind of things to talk about. But for now, thank you, George, and thank you, Anish. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 